The Bible reading this morning is from Mark chapter 5. And I'll be reading the whole chapter, verses 1 to 43. And this can be found on page 710 in your pew Bible. So reading Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, where Jesus got out of the boat. A man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell at his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the, their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, a man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers, named Jairus, came there. Seeing Jesus, he, held at his, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hand on her so that she will be healed and lived. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped 
and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realised what power had gone from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men from the house of Jairus came from the synagogue, Jairus the ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any more? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talithakum, which means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Okay, well let's um, pray now and think about Mark chapter 5 and uh, see if we can be encouraged this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time now. We thank you that we can uh, look at the Word of God and uh, read about Jesus and come to a more solid faith in him. We thank you for this day and please help us to think carefully this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder how it was that you came to faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. I wonder how it happened. I watched an interview recently with uh, Australian former rugby union captain Nick Farr-Jones. He was one of those... Uh, Characters who, who did very well in rugby union. He held up the World Cup, was to receive that from the Queen. And Nick Farr-Jones was being interviewed along with uh, Peter Fitzsimons, who was a journalist, who still is a journalist, for the Sydney Morning Herald. Peter Fitzsimons had done Nick Farr-Jones's auto, or done his biography, and Nick Farr-Jones talked about his conversion uh, in that biography. And so that's how Peter Fitzsimons first came to find out that Nick Farr-Jones became a Christian. And Nick Farr-Jones explained on the interview that uh, he hadn't grown up in a Christian family, but instead that when he was a teenager, he was invited along to church by some friends. Actually, it was a group of girls who took a shine to him, uh, and so he decided he'd better go along. But at that time, he heard the gospel message proclaimed. He became a Christian, put his faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And then later he went home and told his family about his conversion. Nick Farr-Jones has maintained his faith ever since and has been a, a pretty good example of someone who's persevered as a Christian. 
Well, his conversion to Christianity seemed to be fairly straightforward and smooth. But not everybody has a smooth start to the Christian life like that. Some people come to faith from fairly tricky beginnings. And I think as we look through Mark chapter 5 today, we see some examples of people who have pretty radical starts to their faith in Jesus as Lord. The context for today's passage comes from the question of the disciples, who is this man, they asked each other. The twelve had been sailing with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, but strong winds seemed to have blown down from the Golan Heights area. Down the valley formed some large clouds and some heavy rain, some heavy winds and a fierce storm struck. And it looked like the game was over for them and that their boat would sink. Yet as Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves so that they died down, the disciples found a new lease on life. They still looked at each other terrified and said, who, is, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so that's the burning question that Jesus seeks to answer in this part of the Bible in Mark 5. Who then is this? Is this the Jesus that I grew up hearing about, gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Or is he a little bit more muscular than that? Well, Jesus and the disciples arrive on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and so no sooner does he get out of the boat and he is there, a man who is overwhelmed by the power of demons. He's described as having an unclean spirit for the demons seem to have swallowed him up, it seems. They've overwhelmed him. And he lives in a home, if you can call it that, among the tombs. We're given the impression that this guy is super strong. He couldn't be bound by a chain any longer. In fact, he'd been so powerful that he'd uh, wrenched the chains apart and smashed the shackles that held him. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. That word subdue in verse 4 is the same word that's used in James about taming the tongue. They couldn't control him. They couldn't tame this guy because he was overwhelmed with some demons. And he's in a dreadful state. Some commentators have reported that this is the most wretched person that you could, you could probably see in the Bible. We've got a man here who is a picture of sorrow. He's lonely to start with, miserable. He's naked, we know that later on because he's clothed, so at this point he's naked. And he's in a, in a world of chaos and disorder. His super strength seems to come from the demon possession though, but... As readers of Mark's Gospel, we're already familiar with the fact that Jesus has authority over the demonic. So Jesus is going to be in control of this situation. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus told the teachers of the law that he wasn't the one who was actually uh, driving out demons by the power of Satan. He said he's actually in opposition to Satan. This is what he says about Satan. He says, No one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house or plunder his goods. And that's exactly what we see Jesus do here in, when he's confronted with the, the demonic. Jesus has authority over the prince of demons. He's got authority over Satan. There's no real struggle for Jesus has overpowered Satan the strong man. And in today's passage we see an example of Jesus plundering Satan's house. He's actually going to rob this man back out of Satan's dominion. 
And we see that Jesus has this power and authority over because this person immediately comes and rushes out to Jesus and asks for some kind of mercy. The spirit's name is Legion. And if you know anything about uh, Roman armies and how many people were in a legion, does anybody know? We'll get a bit of feedback from the, the congregation today. Does anybody know how many uh, soldiers would be in a Roman legion? Yes, uh, Lachlan. Uh, more? More than 3,000? Any, any bit as higher than... Th- what do you think, David? 4,000? Yeah, getting nearer. Uh, David said 4,000. There's actually... There was at least 5,000 and sometimes about 6,000 in a Roman legion. So if there's anything from the name, we're getting the picture that this guy is overwhelmed by a legion, a lot of demons. But we see that Jesus is Lord over the evil spirits. They beg him for mercy not to be tortured or sent out of the area. It's hard to know exactly what they're asking for here, asking not to leave that region or not to be sent into an abyss to be tortured. In any case, Jesus cast the demons out of the man and the guy experiences a type of healing or salvation. He's no longer one of Satan's possessions. He's no longer one of Satan's goods or chattels. He's been taken out of Satan's house by Jesus. And the spirits end up in the herd of some 2,000 pigs and which drown in the sea. And it brings us to the reaction by some people. The people in the area arrive on the scene and they find out what Jesus has done. But something surprising happens in verse 17. You'd expect that they're very glad about this man being restored to life again from what he was. But in verse 17 we read, Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Perhaps these people are a bit like the seed that was sown on the path and it's just taken away. They can see what Jesus has done. They, they know something of who he is, but they don't want to have anything to do with him. The man who was healed, has a different kind of response. So it's quite a, a wonderful response. We see him next, he's dressed now, and he's in his right mind, uh, which means he's probably pretty with it, pretty normal, and he's begging to go with Jesus. He might even want to become one of the 12 disciples. And so the results of what Jesus has done are very moving. The demons have left and he's now a new man. He wasn't simply someone who had emotional problems. He was an emotionally mixed up kind of a guy who uh, needed a taste of some special psychotherapy. Uh, we don't get at that impression. We, we see that he's better because the demons have left and he's a new man. And since he's in a Gentile area, it doesn't seem to concern Jesus that news gets out about what he's done and so Jesus tells him to go back to his family and tell them what the Lord has done for him. And the man goes out and tells them what Jesus has done. And it's a great and wonderful ending to a story, isn't it? Well, what is our reaction to Jesus? What's your reaction to Jesus? We can see today that not only is he Lord over nature, he's also Lord over the demonic. But who do we identify with best in the crowd? Do we identify with the crowds that didn't want Jesus? Or do we identify with the man who was very grateful? Well, if we're honest, sometimes we possibly do identify a bit with the crowds. Uh, At times we might think that we don't really want to spend time knowing Jesus. We don't really always want to serve Jesus. Sometimes we want to serve ourselves. Sometimes we might even think it might be a bit more convenient for ourselves if um, maybe Jesus moved on from our lives as well. Of sorts. That's when we're selfish and rebellious, isn't it, those times? 
Perhaps we should be more like this man who remembers and is very grateful for what Jesus has done for him. He's grateful for his salvation. A changed life is the fruit of Jesus' work. Often in, time, in life we're busy thinking about what's urgent, what our future holds and what we've got a plan to do next so that we do have a future, don't we? But it can be good for us at times to stop and slow down, to look at a few family photos and things, look back on our past, look back on our lives and to see where God has taken us from, see where God has drawn us to himself and the kind of life that we're now being led into as God leads us into the future. But as this morning, as we think back on our life and what God's done for us, are we grateful? Are we grateful for God drawing us to himself and actually giving us forgiveness? Are you grateful for that moment? Is it fresh in your mind what God's done with, with your life and how much less sorrow is in your life because you're living a Christian life? And you're looking forward to a hopeful future. Or are you someone who's still yet to come to that point where you do turn back to the Lord? Where you ask God for forgiveness and come ready to follow Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Are you at that point now? Well, the Bible reminds us that Jesus has been kind. He's been willing to be the one who ransoms us. Uh, he dies in our place for our sin. The Bible tells us he's risen again to pour out his Holy Spirit into our life and that if we receive God's gift of forgiveness by putting our trust in Jesus, we can also enjoy salvation and a hope for the future. This man who's been healed looks like he's very grateful for that salvation and the challenge is, are we grateful for it? Well, in the next couple of sections, we see that Jesus deals with death and disease. Mark records for us two very desperate situations. The first one is a young daughter of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, who's sick. She's 12 years old. And a lady who was, has trouble, has had big problems with a, a flow of blood that's been going for 12 years as well. Jairus comes to the feet of Jesus because he's confident that Jesus can actually do something to help his situation. And Jesus willingly follows on to go to Jairus' place. And on the way, a lady who's also had a difficult time with doctors, I think uh, the kind of expression, the placebo effect, uh, characterised a lot of medicine prior to, I guess, uh, the last hundred years. Not that I'm a doctor, but you can go and talk to doctors about that, but that's what I've heard. A lot of things are involved the the, the witch doctor and placebo effect. So this lady, she's had a difficult time. She's, she's not been healed of her flow of blood, but she's only got worse and she's all the poorer for it. She's spent money on it. And so she looks to Jesus for help. Jesus becomes the object of their faith, each of these people. And as the lady comes to Jesus, many people are crowding around Jesus and they're pressing on him. Now, to get the picture, I think I'll just have to cast your minds back to those rock and roll concerts that you might have been to. I went to the Hoodoo Gurus concerts a few years ago and uh, certainly the crowd was pressing in so heavily on each other that people were getting squished up and thrown over the top and people were thrown on and crowd surfing. I don't think it's quite that situation here with Jesus, but certainly people are pressing in on very tight, so it's hard for Jesus to know who's squashing him as he walks through the crowd. The, the lady touches Jesus in a very deliberate manner. She reaches out in faith and means to touch Jesus 
to be healed. Jesus asks the disciples about it because he knows power has gone out from him and they, they respond by saying, well, how can we know? Because there's lots of people pressing in on you. And she becomes one of those people again at Jesus' feet and she's trembling and she talks about what's been done. But Jesus, the one who is Lord over nature, is also Lord over disease and he commends her for her faith, for her trust in him. In verse 34, he says to her daughter, which is a warm expression, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. But while that's happening, while she's experiencing some grace and some, uh, some wonderful news and, and a good experience, there's been a lag in time. And perhaps Mark's even structured this account where he's sandwiched this story about the woman in between the section about Jairus' daughter at the start and at the end to give us the impression that time's now running out. And this family of Jairus is experiencing a sense of loss as they see that time's run out for their little girl. Verse 35, we're told, while Jesus was still speaking... Some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Well, the response of those around Jesus at this point is for them to lose hope. And there's nothing quite like that feeling of losing hope, is there? If you think about difficult times in your life where you've wondered how you will face the future because you've lost hope. I can recall a time when our little David was born. When he was just born, he needed to be revived by the doctors at Blacktown Hospital over 10 times. And they sent him with a group of doctors in an emergency van over to a neonatal intensive care unit where I spoke to a man who'd been studying for more years than I've been alive and he said to me, he keeps fitting and shutting down. I just don't know what's wrong with your son. That was a very, very low time for us as a family, and we get the impression that this family is also experiencing one of those very low times because their hope's been snuffed out now that their little girl's died. Well, although it's a low point, as readers we're still, we're not losing hope because we're confident of what Jesus can do in this situation. In verse 38, when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw the commotion with the people crying and wailing loudly. And that's understandable, isn't it? Because the girl's only 12 years old and it's a, it's a, it's a rotten thing to see happening. Verse 39, he went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. We know he means that she's not going to be dead for long. And they laugh at him in verse 40. But we're well placed to see that things are going to get better because Jesus is in control in this situation. Even though they've felt that time has run out, Jesus encourages Jairus to put his trust in him. Verse 36, ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Well, the people have different reactions to Jesus, don't they? Some react by ridiculing him. And some come to an assurance that he's even Lord, Lord even over death. Verse 40, we're told, after he, pulled the, he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in 
where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. And so here we see that Jesus is giving this, this family a foretaste of the kingdom of God to come. We've seen that he's Lord over nature. He is Lord over the demonic and he's Lord over disease and even death. He's the one who's gathering in together God's people ready to enjoy that kingdom which he's giving them a foretaste of at this time in his ministry. But people need to come to a faith in him as Lord and Saviour as the means of entering God's kingdom. There has to be a living trust in him. Well, how could they keep this kind of news secret? It's interesting to read there, isn't it, how Jesus gave the parents strict orders not to let anyone know about this. News about Jesus was always going to get out, wasn't it? He tells the parents not to let on about this marvellous miracle. Perhaps he does that so that his ministry can continue long enough that word doesn't get out to the authorities that he's got a kingdom movement. But the people, even if the parents keep quiet on it, the people outside the door who've been wailing, crying and lamenting, they're going to know what's happened, aren't they? They're going to see the little girl again. They're going to see what amazing and wonderful thing Jesus has done, even if the parents keep quiet. What's hidden is eventually going to become out in the open for everybody to realise that Jesus is Lord. Well, at the end of Mark 4... The disciples asked, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And in chapter 5, we start to see a pretty good answer to that question, don't we? He's been portrayed as the Lord over demons, disease and death, the one who's bringing in God's kingdom. When difficult times, sickness and hardship, the sort of hardship that we walk through at times that we know about, these things are going to remind us when we face hardship, they're going to remind us why God sent Jesus into the world. He sent Jesus into the world to bring us a time when those things, those hardships, will be a thing of the past. And that comes as a, a taste when Jesus walked on earth. That kingdom of God was a taste for the man possessed by demons, the anxious father, a daughter who was brought back from the dead, a lady who'd bled for 12 years and was now healed, each of those people had a pretty radical start, a good start to knowing Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. He's the Lord over demons, death and disease. And they enjoyed a taste of the kingdom to come. Well, our start to uh, faith in Jesus as Lord may not have been quite radical like that. But it doesn't matter, does it? If we've got Jesus as Lord, that's, that's, the, that's the main thing anyway. And the challenge for us is about continuing to persevere, standing the test of time as God's people and making it to the end as God's people. Who are we going to serve? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, I'll finish with a, a couple of words from Bob Dylan, who uh, had more hair than me, a bit curlier too. Bob Dylan sang some weird things at times, but he sang some good things too. In this Quote, he sings about the lordship of Jesus, of all things. He says, 
You might like to wear cotton, you might like to wear silk. He's talking about the difference between the rich and the poor. You might like to drink whiskey, or you might like to drink milk. You might like to eat caviar, you might like to eat bread. You may be sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king-sized bed, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, who are you going to serve? May God help us to be people who love to serve Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we do give you thanks for Jesus who is Lord over all. We thank you that you've worked in our lives to bring us to faith in him, that we might enjoy forgiveness of our sins and serve him as our Lord. Lord God, we thank you that uh, we can see the authority of Jesus in this passage today, how marvellous he is to have authority over nature, demons, disease and even death. And Lord God, we look forward to uh, the fullness of time when we enjoy a world without chaos uh, and we dwell in your kingdom with Jesus as our Lord forever. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to persevere between now and that time and we thank you that we've been strengthened and encouraged again from this part of your word today. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Peter.